Welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss a classic piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Laura Robinson. And we're both PhD candidates at Duke University. This week we're discussing G.E.M. St. Croix's 1963 article, Why Were the Early Christians Persecuted? And, because Laura and Ben Shepard are experts on this topic, I'm taking off. Yeah, it's about time, Ian. <laughs> Sounds good. Bye, buddy. See you next See week. Screw off, Ian. Like... <laughs> um, ben, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show and talk with me about martyrdom. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. This article is by G.E.M. St. Croix. Like the drink. We know French speakers at home that the French pronunciation is Saint Croix. We've been told to anglicize it for the purposes of today's show. It's pronounced Saint Croix. You can contact our producer, Ian Mills, <laughs> if you have any issues. <laughs> okay. So Saint Croix was kind of a Renaissance man. He quit school at 15 and became a lawyer. I don't know how you do that. Apparently you can do that <laughs> in England. He competed at Wimbledon. He served in the RAF in Egypt during World War II. And then he learned ancient history at Oxford and spend the rest of his life teaching there. Yeah. He's known for taking a Marxist approach to political and economic history of ancient Greece, and significantly, he also published a, a kind of back-and-forth series of articles on Christian persecution in the Roman world with fellow historian A.N. Sherwin-White, which is the genesis of this particular piece. St. Croix is best remembered as more of a classicist than anything, not quite a New Testament scholar, which is normally what we focus on. But this article in, in his essays in dialogue with Sherwin-White are uh, really foundational for how we understand uh, the phenomenon of early Christian persecution, particularly in the era in the Roman Empire in the era before Constantine. When we talk about martyrdom in the early church, in the way it was remembered and theologized and presented, there's a lot of different ways we can tackle this. Uh, a lot of scholarship about martyrdom focuses on the historical memory of it in the creation of martyr literature, how the cult of the martyrs developed, uh, the theology that surrounded martyrdom, how Christians understood uh, the memories of martyrs, how martyrs understood themselves. There's a lot of different like literary and theological and ideological ways we can approach this. But what I really love about this article is that this is a way more historical nitty-gritty approach to the question that I think often gets short shrift, and that is, what exactly did the persecution of Christians look like? Why did the Roman Empire have a problem with them? Did the Roman Empire have a problem with them? Did uh, Joe Roman have a problem with Christians? The answer that some of you who were raised particularly in the church, I think, uh, might bring to this is just sort of an intuitive, well, of course they were. We all have these images in our heads of the stained glass windows of the Christians being thrown to the lions and such, but... I think it's important to note that that's not quite how the first three centuries of Christian persecution went down. In a certain sense, and not to be pejorative about it, but trying to be descriptive, a lot of the martyr literature that we have is, in a certain sense, historical fiction, in that it is written about a time period that was in the past when the people writing this literature actually wrote it. So. The, a lot of martyr literature is written about the 2nd and 3rd centuries, when in fact the authors themselves were in a period that was post-Constantine or even into late antiquity. What can we know about the actual historical circumstances during this actual period? What actual texts do we have from this period? What sources from this period do we have? Rather than relying on later historical memories to tell us about this period of martyrdom. So when we're talking about the first three centuries after Jesus and the first three Christian centuries, 
What we aren't talking about is a period of wall-to-wall, systematic, general, government-driven persecution. We're talking about, at most, three significant episodes of persecution. There's one under Nero, where the Christians are uh, scapegoated for the fire of Rome. Uh, There's one under Decian in uh, about 250. And then there's the Great Persecution in the 4th century. But between these periods of like large, intense, uh, violent persecution, persecution in the Roman Empire of Christians is actually quite sporadic. Between these episodes, Christians enjoyed long periods of peace where there was time for theology to flourish and apologetics to flourish. Christians didn't really have to worry about being killed. Or there were often times where persecution would be quite localized. So maybe the Christians in France were facing pressure and persecution, but in Asia, things were fine. When we think about persecution, what we're talking about is sporadic, localized activity. And our goal here is to figure out what made those sporadic things happen. A really good and succinct way of talking about this is provided for us by Canada Moss, who is a uh, New Testament scholar, also a scholar of early Christianity, currently teaching at Birmingham University in England. She published a book rather provocatively titled The Myth of Persecution. But we agree with her basic point, which is that our modern conceptions of martyrdom is in fact based on a very distorted retelling of what happened in these first three centuries of the early Christian era up until the time of Constantine. Uh, There weren't Christians being, you know, thrown on a conveyor belt into lion's mouths. There weren't You know, Romans going house to house, you know, this isn't analogous to Nazi persecution of Jews. So this is um, this is a quote uh, from one of her chapters on persecution in general. The idea of a persecuted church comes predominantly from authors who are writing after the reign of Constantine had begun and in some cases centuries after his death. Although there were other historians and church thinkers, Eusebius has uniquely shaped the way that people tell the story of Christianity. Just inside Eusebius being an early Christian historian. Eusebius helped to make the history of Christianity the history of persecution. The historical evidence suggests that the majority of texts about martyrs were either written down or heavily edited during this period of relative peace and quiet. These stories were composed because a martyr's opinion as a holy person prepared to die in defense of Christ had great authority in the eyes of readers. When it came to matters of truth, there was no better authority than a saint. Now that we've yeah. got the ground cleared for what exactly we're talking about when we talk about the history of persecution and what it looked like, let's take a look at St. Croix's two questions that drive the article. Why did the government persecute? Why, on the occasions that Christians were persecuted, uh, particularly between these episodes of generalized persecution, what exactly was it about Christians that caused Romans to levy charges against them and carry them out? What was the charge specifically that Christians were being sentenced on? And then the second question he asks is, why would ordinary pagans want Christians to be persecuted? Uh, And this is going to be more relevant once we've started to flesh out exactly how the Roman justice system works. But in light of this, why would a pagan want his Christian neighbor to face some kind of legal consequences for being a Christian? So let's take on the first question first. Why did the Roman government persecute Christians? Okay, so... A.N. Sherman White is another classical scholar who's actually done a bit more work in early Christianity than St. Croix has done. He published an article and then a series of lectures where he proposed to answer the question of why were Christians persecuted by the Romans in the first place? The kind of general conception that's taught, at least in churches that I've attended, has been that 
Romans just hated God. And uh, they wanted to persecute, persecute Christians because Christians were very pious. It's not a historical reason. <laughs> Anyone who knows Roman history knows this is not the case at all. The Romans were incredibly pious. I mean, annoyingly so. So there's got to be another kind of historical reason for why Romans were persecuting Christians. And Sherwin White suggests this, and it's based on a letter we have from Pliny the Younger uh, in about 112 CE, who is going through the northern regions of Asia Minor, and he is writing a correspondence with the Emperor Trajan. And he discovers uh, a group of Christians he knows that they're doing something wrong, but he doesn't know exactly what they're doing. So he talks to them. He uh, actually tortures and interrogates some of them. And he finds out that, in fact, they're really not doing any of these crazy things like cannibalism or incest. Which they were accused of. Which people were accusing them of doing. But he finds, no, they're not doing it. They're eating a meal, but it's just ordinary stuff. There's nothing like that. So according to Sherman White, what happens in this situation, his reading of Pliny, is that Pliny orders the Christians to comply with what Pliny thinks is a reasonable request, to sacrifice to the gods, which is something that every other citizen of the ancient Mediterranean would do in any given situation. And I just want to say here that this is a fairly small-scale sacrifice. Like, we're not saying that they go out and they get a bull and they slaughter it and they burn it on an altar. This is an act of just, like, burning a little bit of incense to the gods. It's a very small-scale sacrifice. Absolutely. Burn some incense, pour out a little wine, a very minor physical action. They refuse to do this, and so he charges them with something uh, which in Latin would be called contumacia, which could be translated as obstinacy, right? And so it is their refusal, their obstinate refusal to follow a reasonable request that then becomes the standard charge associated with Christians. This goes back to Trajan. Trajan approves of this, and then this becomes precedent for Roman proconsuls and Roman governors all over the ancient Roman Empire. Yeah. What Sherwin White is basically envisioning is a situation where Christians are primarily being killed on contempt of court. They are in a trial situation and they do some disrespectful thing that causes them to be killed. Here are the problems that St. Croix sees with this. First is that Pliny never actually uses the term contumacia, the the obstinacy terms. Uh, he never actually says that this is the charge for which they're executed. But he also notes that in order to be charged with contempt of court, a trial already has to be going on. Like you don't. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody. Like no one's gonna come in here right now and arrest Ben and I for contempt of court. We can be arrested for a variety of other things, <laughs> but contempt of court is something that happens in a courtroom. It doesn't make any sense that people would be arresting Christians because they showed contempt for the court. There's also the 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 question of what exactly is this sacrifice test intended to do, for lack of a better word. Pliny never says that he brings in a Christian, they claim to be a Christian, and then he makes them sacrifice and they don't, and then he kills them. The sacrifice is a very particular thing that Pliny introduces when he has someone in front of him who is accused of being a Christian who says that they aren't anymore. Pliny's response to this is, prove it. He offers a chance to sacrifice. Pliny somehow knows, uh, it's not clear how, he, he knows that Christians won't sacrifice to the gods. This is an act that is intended to discourage people from being Christians, not to, not to trap Christians so you can kill them. But again, it, it's not specifically the lack of sacrificing that the Christian in question is being charged for. 
They're being brought in because of something else. In that case, it seems as though there has to be another charge that is operating here that makes the Christian in question subject to legal proceedings. So what is the charge that causes Christians to be brought before the court? So there's a number of different hypotheses about why Christians, in in legal terms, what charge was brought against them. So Sherwin White argues for obstinacy. Other people have suggested, say, sedition against the Roman state or charges of atheism. But when we find, when we look at the actual data, is we find something very different. St. Croix argues that it's just the charge of being called a Christian. It's specifically the name Christian that can get you in legal trouble. The evidence for Christians being charged not for incest or cannibalism or sedition, but being charged for the name Christian, it actually shows up in a fair number of ancient texts. Uh, specifically, it shows up in this letter between Pliny and Trajan. Uh, there's references in this between two people being charged as Christians or lists of Christians going around, people being accused of being Christians. This name keeps coming up as sort of a shorthand of being a bad person who needs to, uh, to, to be tried. The apologists also make reference to this. Both Justin and Tertullian make reference to the fact that Christians are being charged for the act of being Christian. There is work in the apologists that trying to disprove some of these crazier accusations, such as uh, cannibalism and incest, but they are also attacking the fact that it's not just and it's not fair that they should be charged with being a Christian, which indicates that this is actually what's happening. Some good evidence that Christians were, in fact, being simply charged with the name of being Christian or their self-identification as Christian or uh, being accused of being Christian is that Justin and Tertullian, among the other apologists, really have to dance around the implications of this because if someone is truly a Christian and they go to trial for being a Christian, people like Justin and Tertullian, who are Christians, want them to be found guilty. They want them to be found guilty of being Christians because that's what they are. In these situations, the bad result would for them to be acquitted, which means they have repented or apostatized and denied their Christianity. And so this actually, it leads to some interesting kind of logical legal arguments that Justin Tertullian, again, among others, get into in their respective uh, apologies uh, that they want Christians to be accused for being Christians, but they still have to protest this idea that it's just the name of Christian, which is the charge. And so the Romans, at least in some cases, are trying to get people to deny the charge and let them off rather than condemn them and punish them. They see this as a weird contrast, which it is. So this brings us to the question of how exactly a trial of a Christian might go down in the first century. What do these look like? The first thing we should note is that the trials of Christians are actually trials. Uh, Like there is a charge in question that the Christian is being accused of, and they go before a person who is qualified to hear this case and make a decision about it. Uh, This is not a summary execution, for instance. Like, no one is just dragging a Christian in front of the proconsul, and they're getting their head lopped off. This is the first thing that St. Croix wants to lay out, is that, that these are not summary proceedings. These are not terroristic police measures. This is a trial with charges that a person could defend themselves against. And with several major exceptions, one of which we'll we'll get to in a moment, the majority of the actual martyr texts that we can confidently date to the 2nd and 3rd centuries 
are almost exclusively framed in the context of some sort of trial, whether that's the acts of the Silicon Martyrs, the Passion of Perpetua, or that's the acts of Justin. I mean, these are all trial accounts. So the Christians themselves is giving us evidence that martyrdom occurs in a trial setting. And one of the other really important things to understand about this is that the governors or the proconsuls, whoever was carrying out this charge, they had a wide latitude uh, in both whether they held to some kind of previous precedent uh, or what sentence they passed, right? So it is often claimed that persecution of Christians happened in the Roman Empire because of Nero's persecution of Christians or because of Pliny's persecution of Christians. And while this is true and these do set some sort of precedent, governors were not actually required to abide by this. They had a wide latitude in terms of whether uh, they were going to prosecute this charge, how they were going to do it. And even beyond that, even when they allowed Christians to be brought to trial, they actually had a wide set of options in terms of what they could do. So Tertullian is actually a fascinating source on this because we've already mentioned Tertullian in the context of his apology. Uh, and in another writing, he talks about different proconsuls in North Africa and their attitudes towards Christians who are brought to them at trial. Tertullian is a really good witness for this because Tertullian, again, is very pro-martyr. He wants Christians to die because he wants them to be confirmed as Christians. However, after mentioning the first proconsul to bear the sword against Christians in his district, he goes on and mentions several other following proconsuls who actually do a variety of different things. Apparently one actually helped the Christians get an acquittal. Another one acquitted a Christian outright on the ground that convicting him would start a riot. Another one, on a purely procedural note, found that the accuser didn't show up to the trial, and so he declared a mistrial and just let the Christian go free. So, in reality and in practice, it was not an immediate death sentence to be accused as a Christian. Just showing up to a trial as a Christian was no guarantee that you would in fact be killed as a Christian. There are a myriad of ways that you could get off. We talk about the wide latitude of the Roman trial system. This doesn't always mean it's fickle, arbitrary injustice that results in the deaths of innocent people. It can also swing the other way, that governors can take an action to prevent the killing of Christians if they don't think this is a helpful thing to do. There's also a very specific process that is followed in the course of a Roman trial. Uh, all prosecution in the Roman Empire is private. There is no such thing as a Roman prosecutor. It's, uh, anyone who hears about a crime, knows about a crime, is the victim of a crime can bring a person before the magistrate in question demand prosecution for this crime. When we hear from Pliny and Trajan, no one is going out and seeking out Christians. It's just that if you happen to know your neighbor's a Christian and you think this is a problem, you can draw, drag them before the magistrate. But you do stand to lose something by this. Uh, a delator, if, if they are unsuccessful in their prosecution, if they're found to be making some kind of a frivolous case or slandering somebody, they can face legal consequences themselves. Uh, accusing a person of being a Christian has its drawbacks. Uh, and this also, I think, puts probably a controlling number on how many people we can think of would actually be accused as Christians. That, you know, not everyone wants to take that risk. The upshot of all this is, like, this is what it would look like from the government's perspective to persecute a Christian. This was way more of a mob violence phenomenon. 
And this brings us to St. Croix's second question, which is, why would pagans care? Why would the average everyday Roman want a Christian to face consequences for his or her beliefs? One of our biggest exceptions to all this that we've gone over so far, this idea of the trial and the specific charge, is this text called The Letter to the Churches of Lyon and Vienne, which we find in Eusebius, who is writing in the 4th century. He's providing a letter that recounts an event that happened in the late 2nd century in southern Gaul. And basically what it reports is more of what this kind of popular idea of martyrdom is, is that there's this mob that just goes through and starts like ripping Christians out of homes and dragging them before proconsuls. And the proconsuls have no respect for any kind of judicial integrity and they just torture the Christians and execute them. And it's, it, it's taken, I think, by many scholars as, as an example of something that actually did happen very often in the Roman Empire. Yeah, but this was normative. Uh, right. Yeah. And we don't really have many examples outside of this. This to, is the big one. Yeah, this is the big one. So why would this happen? Christians, you know, we've already mentioned how they would not sacrifice to the Roman gods. We've already mentioned that they wouldn't comply with these ordinary Roman religious requests. And this is why Christians are often understood by pagans to be atheists. The religious practice of Christians is extremely exclusive. They only worship one God. They don't give divine honors to deceased Roman emperors or, or the, the gods of the Roman Empire, more generally speaking. Christians are seen as messing up this uh, relationship between the human and divine by not participating and not showing the honor that the gods ought to. They're perceived as, as being misanthropic. They're perceived of as being atheistic. And they're perceived as causing disaster, that if Christians don't do what we're supposed to do as people under our gods, we will not enjoy the benefits that these gods give us. Um, so Tertullian reports that it is particularly common to have this mob violence against Christians. Again, Tertullian, you know, taking it with a grain of salt, but we do still have this historical witness that violence against Christians was particularly common in occasions of tension or natural disaster. Uh, they are an easy source of people to blame because they are, they are seen as causing the gods to have less favor for Rome. And it should be noted, because the apologists note this, that atheism in the technical sense of not believing in gods was a thing that happened in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of Greek and Roman philosophers who, you know, publicly profess that they didn't believe in, in the gods. The difference between them and the Christians, I mean, I think there's two major differences. One being that the Christians are a social movement that collectively espouse this rather than individual philosophers. But also, it's probable that these individual philosophers or philosophically inclined people were still engaging in the actual cultic elements of religious life in the ancient Mediterranean, they're making sacrifices, they're going to temples, maybe they were initiated into certain rites. And so this kind of intellectual non-belief was not connected to their actual practice. And the, the apologists actually make a big deal out of this about saying like, well, look, look at all these otherwise people who are known as atheists, while kind of alighting or ignoring or pushing to aside the fact that as Christians, the real issue wasn't the atheism in, in the more technical sense of belief. It was the fact that they weren't participating in the wider life of the city. This is how St. Croix answers these two questions. Why did the government persecute Christians? Because they were called Christians. 
the name Christian was the problem. However, even if you were found to be a Christian or accused of being a Christian, there were a number of snags between you and the Colosseum, uh, on the wrong end of the Colosseum, I guess. For the general population, why would Romans d- desire to uh, have Christians put to death? Because they were failing to participate in the civic life of the Roman city, particularly through uh, their failure to participate in the religious rites of Rome that secured the favor of the gods and the peace and security of the city. Now, one of St. Croix's primary suggestions in order to explain this popular persecution, one of his kind of individual interventions, is to suggest that it had something to do with the phenomenon of what is called frustratingly in the literature, uh, voluntary martyrdom. When we talk about martyrdom, we often default to the idea that this is a thing that the Roman world is doing to Christians. The chain works the other way sometimes. From the earliest days of Christian belief, the violent death, the violent self-sacrificial and meaningful and beneficial death of its founder is the dominant image of Christian theology. And martyrdom becomes very venerated very quickly. And it turns out that this means that a lot of Christians actually want to get martyred, that they want to share in the same fate and suffering as as Jesus and as these other famous figures in Christian history. Uh, Paul very early on, and then, you know, of course, there's martyrdom legends around Peter. So, So occasionally, when we're talking about who accused these Christians of being Christians, Sometimes it was Christians. We do have records of Christians going out to meet the passing chariots of magistrates, yelling that they are Christians and demanding to be executed. This is a thing that happens. And so St. Croix suggests, in fact, that this might be a reason why people didn't like Christians because... <laughs> it's, it's weird. <laughs> no, it is. Like, there's, yeah. there's, like, suicidal. And this is, there's a fantastic text, which you, you can read in about five minutes or less, called the Acts of the Silitan Martyrs, that these, these may be the people that uh, Tertullian was referring to when he said, talking about the first proconsul who bared the sword in North Africa. In any mm-hmm. case, there's this fantastic interaction between these early Christians and this Roman proconsul, and the Roman proconsul has no idea what's going on. He doesn't get what these people are doing. He's like, hey guys, you know, I don't get it, so just just go home and just mind your own business. And like, no, no, we want to die, we want to die. We are Christians, like this yes, repetition. Yes, I am. Yeah, right, so yeah. they're repeating the charge, their own charge, right? So they're trying to be found guilty. They're trying to demand this guy find them guilty. At the end, he's like, guys, look, go home for 30 days. Think about it. Come back later. We'll work on this, guys. We'll work on this together. He doesn't want to slaughter these people because he doesn't see any reason why it should happen. It doesn't make sense to him. And still these Christians are demanding that they be put to the sword, which is something that, understandably, might be disturbing to both Romans and to the people who are watching these Christians and might, in fact, in itself antagonize pagans against Christians. Right. That's a whole other answer to the question of why would the government persecute? Because people were coming to them demanding to be persecuted. And why would the average Roman uh, feel feel distaste for their neighbors? Because they don't understand this. Not just willingness, but desire to be killed for the sake of their faith. Moss has a good summary here. Again, Moss's treatment is is a bit polemical. It's, It's trying to challenge people, but I think like overall it's really solid. One of the things that is thought to make Christian martyrs better than other martyrs is that their actions are motivated by goodness and love. They don't have any interest in or expectation of reward in the hereafter. They die as meek lambs out of love for Jesus. 
This picture, as we have seen, is overly simplistic. Many martyrs died deaths that were, by modern standards, suicidal. There was little difference between the behavior of Orthodox Christians and the behavior of heretical ones. Although only a few martyrs were physically violent, the imagery and language of martyrdom are aggressive and replete with fantasies of vengeful justice. Christians saw themselves at odds with the world and eagerly anticipated the suffering and destruction of those who oppressed them. These are not the meek and forgiving saints of Sunday school. They are, quite literally, soldiers for Christ. Yeah. And so part of this thing with voluntary martyrdom is that this, this actually became a debate very early on within Christianity. And so mm-hmm. voluntary martyrdom, you know, if you want to put those in scare quotes, is something that early Christians invented to try and say, well, no, no, the bad types of martyrs did this, but good martyrs act this way. And as Christianity became more institutionalized, there were strands of Christianity that eventually became less interested in this kind of chaotic, suicidal approach to martyrdom and really wanted people just to, you know, keep their heads down and mind their own business. And, you know, if if persecution came their way, they could run away or they could do other things, uh, but not seek out persecution and martyrdom if it wasn't pressing on them. Yeah. One thing that we don't have a lot of when it comes to martyr texts, we do have texts, say, from the Romans describing how the Romans treated Christians. We have Christians talking about once they get to trial, what they do or what happens. We don't have a lot of texts that really get us into the mind of the martyrs. But one text that we do is from a guy that we don't actually know whether he was martyred or not. And that was Ignatius of Antioch, who was traveling through Asia Minor in the same general time frame as Pliny, maybe the second decade of the second century. And he's, he's dashing off letters to various churches as he goes. And one of the letters he writes is to the church at Rome, because the reason he's in Asia Minor in the first place is because he's being taken from Antioch in Syria through Asia Minor to Rome to face judgment at a Roman trial. And one of the fascinating things about this letter is that he's very anxious about being killed in that he's anxious that he might not be killed. He's desperate to die. Uh, and so he, he does several things. He talks to the Roman Christians. He imagines the Roman Christians might be able to maybe like put in a good word or bribe someone or, or do something that would like stop him from dying, which he is very clear to them. He says, don't stop me from dying. If you stop me from dying, you will kill me. And one of the other things he says is he talks about the actual Roman magistrates that he's going to encounter. And he says, I'm going to beg them to kill me. I'm going to force them to kill me. And so the level of anxiety uh, in this text is pretty incredible. I think it, it, it ties back. So the, the intention that Ignatius demonstrates here of his willingness to die, I think actually gives us a way to conceive of how St. Croix and Sherwin White actually kind of fit together in a certain way. Because there's a difference between why someone might be brought to trial and then the actual reason why they're actually convicted of the crime. As we've seen, you could be brought to trial as a Christian, but not actually be convicted. And so I think that is the precise problem that Ignatius is dealing with. He's been convicted of being a Christian, but he's afraid that he might actually get to Rome and not be convicted. And he wants to be convicted because he wants that affirmation, right? He wants someone to say, you're a Christian, and he wants that 
part of his identity to be affirmed. And so he's actually preparing to be obstinate. He's preparing to have this contumacia where he goes up against the magistrate and absolutely fights, as we see in the Silicon Martyrs. Uh, Marcus Aurelius suggests this about the Christians. He says they're obstinate in just kind of an offhand way. That's a thing that he knows about Christians. Uh, but this is what Ignatius is preparing for. He's preparing for this battle, this agonistic struggle, in which he's going to go up against Rome and say he's going to force them to kill him as a Christian. So lots of different answers then to the question of uh, why were early Christians persecuted, but I hope that St. Croix has helped you guys uh, think through how we understand these issues and how we frame these issues. We'll, we'll have to do more plunges into this material. There's, there's so, so much, so much to talk about. about. I oh know, God, we yeah. just scratched the surface. So, uh, But Ben, thank you so much for doing this with thank me today. I really that. appreciate it. Glad you uh, kept, kicked me into the curve. I, I am too. Yeah. I, I don't do that enough. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen brighter stars than you I don't you can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, Review, or email us at NewTestamentReview at gmail.com. <laughs>